Welcome to this edition of Risk Engineers Talk Governance. In this episode, due diligence engineers Richard Robinson and Gay Francis talk about land use planning and major hazards. We hope you enjoy the episode. If you do, please give us a rating. Also remember to subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and check out the other episodes. Enjoy. Hi, Richard. Welcome to another podcast session. Hi, how, how are good. you today? It's good to be here. Now, we were going to talk about today um, some land use planning stuff and major hazards, and uh, we've been doing a little bit of work in that space at the moment and some of the confusion around that. Um, so where do, where, do we, where do you want to kick off? Well, I think it might just be worth explaining how R2A's current position and where we got to. Uh, basically, in Victoria, the 2004 OHS Act came in, and from R2A's viewpoint, that changed the way in which land use planning around major hazards ought to be done. Up until that point, uh, what everybody seemed to be doing was this quantified risk assessment using target levels of risk and safety. In Victoria, that's one by 10 to the minus 7 for a, per year for a single fatality, and in New South Wales, that's one by 10 to the minus 6 for a single fatality, as well as some you know, societal risk curves and things like that. Now, in, from our point of view at R2A, after the Bunsfield incident, that's where you had the giant vapour cloud explosion in the UK, uh, which basically decimated the fifth largest oil storage facility. And it might just be worth briefly explaining what that incident was, just so everybody understands the context of all this. Uh, basically, um, they overfilled a petrol tank by 300 tonnes of petrol. That splashed out into the Bund, and there are a whole lot of reasons why that happened, people missing calculations and overflow thing, switches which didn't work and a few other things. But the short answer was that about 10% of it turned into a vapour cloud. So that's 30 tonnes of vapour floating around looking for a problem. Um, that 30 tonnes of vapour, up until that point, unconfined vapour cloud explosions weren't really deemed to be credible. What was expected to happen in those instances is that you get a deflagration, that is a defined ignition source and the flame front would progress through the cloud, but at subsonic speeds. It wouldn't go supersonic and create a shockwave. Obviously, if you're in the cloud when this was happening, that That's would be good. bad. Um, but the detonation wasn't supposed to happen. Now, this was a very odd collection of events. For in order for the vapour cloud to hang around, you had to have the right atmospheric conditions. And then according to the Professor of Fire Engineering at, um, in Scotland, uh, Dougal Drysdale, um, they'd pull out of the trees. You know how when you try to mix chemicals up, you have to have a really interesting sort of shape of twisty things? And apparently the pull out of trees facilitated the mixing of the vapour so that it actually formed the you know, perfect stoichiometric mixture, such that when it found the ignition source, which apparently was a fire pump, sort of ironically, the thing actually detonated, which was a considered... And obviously, and you can see by all the factors that I've just articulated, it's a rare event. You definition. wouldn't expect all of those things to come together very in one unlikely sequence. And very unlucky, right? But the consequence was from R2A's viewpoint, and we kept talking with relevant major hazards regulators in all states, especially mm -hmm. Victoria and New South Wales, and they persisted in using the quantified risk assessment approach using target levels of risk and safety. And the, Where the likelihood just downgraded all of those incidents to Correct. say that it wasn't going to happen. Correct, because it was so rare, they just pulled it back to the 10 to the minus 7 or the 10 to the minus 6 fatality. And tick, we got our licence to trade. Now, the problem with all this is, and this is what Maxwell QC specifically said. Now, I'm actually summarising a conversation I had with somebody who'd been talking to him and an example he was giving. 
But he's sort of saying, look, it's like this. Um, somebody lost an arm in a press somewhere. And a workplace inspector turns up and says, how the hell did this happen? And the, um, you know, this is an XYZ press that should have a guard. And the answer was, and under the old Act, in Victoria at least, you had to do a risk assessment and you could do a risk assessment using target levels of risk and safety and you could multiply the likelihood by the consequence and it would be in the green zone, you didn't have to do anything. Now, obviously the consequence didn't change. If you put your arm on the press, you lost it. The likelihood factor is determined by multiplying how often you do it by the probability of the event. And so if you only ever use the press every one or two years... The probability is really small, likelihood's really small. Yes, but you still lost your arm. Mm. And one of the points about the common law and the AOHS Act, as far as we're concerned, took the common law and elevated the statute law, it basically says everybody is entitled to an equal level of protection. Mm-hmm. So if you use that press at all, it doesn't matter if you use it ten times a day or once a year, you're entitled to an equal level of protection and that equal level of protection, the minimum you must achieve is recognised good practice. Yes. And that means it's consequence-driven. So what happened to I2A was we kept trying to persuade major hazard regulators to adopt a criticality-driven consequence, credible worst-case consequence approach, and they all kept using... Risk. ...quantified risk assessments. Mm. And so I2A had to walk away from it. Yeah. The other point about that, though, was, and that's why I2A changed ourselves from being risk engineers to due diligence engineers, because that's what you're trying to demonstrate. And the only way to do that was to actually use um, the criticality-driven vulnerability-type approach. Now, why we're interested in this and why the subject came up, and Gary's looking at me slightly strangely, but anyway, the reason why this popped up was that we got this request to have a look in Victoria at a couple of major hazard pr- uh, proposals that were in or nearby a major hazard facility. And it turns some out very recently... Some developments. Some developments. Some. Very recently that the area that you have to consider for major hazards planning purposes suddenly increased. Changed. The contours have changed. The contours have changed. And nobody knows quite why this has happened. We have a bit of an inkling that they've gone... They're now being driven by the consequences rather than the likelihood. We think they're taking the credible worst-case consequences. And the way you normally do that from R2A's viewpoint, you do a zonal vulnerability analysis. You basically say, where's the largest energy storage on the site? Mm. Like a... A gas sphere, for example, and if that dropped its load, what's the credible worst case that could happen? And the consequence for that is you then say, well, this is the credible worst case consequence from this site. You then look at where you are in, in proximity to that and design for that accordingly. I mean, they've still got a little bit of buffer in there because they're still taking a lot of their measure- measurements from their boundaries. Correct, but so, I. So there's a little bit of a buffer in there, but yes, they appear to be consequence driven rather than risk-driven the contours. We think so. We don't know so no. because nobody's saying. No. <laughs> it's very hard to get all of this confirmed. Absolutely, because all you get is a public summary of whatever the safety case with the mm. major hazard regulator and the major hazard site is, and that actually doesn't tell you. And that is particularly frustrating. We at R2A very much support the view of the US Supreme Court Judge Louise Brandis in his happy little book, Other People's Money and How Bankers Use It, where he spells out... Sunlight is the best disinfectant. There is no sunlight in here at all. I think one of the, um, and I guess where we're coming from now, so yes, they've changed to that consequence-driven, what appears to be consequence-driven um, contours. 
What they're still doing, though, is they're not applying the full precautionary pro approach that's been required by the OHS and WHS legislation. Absolutely. They're still concentrating their controls only in the controls of what they have. Yes. So they're not looking at the overall controls that could be put in place to deal with a major hazard facility that all parties, reasonable parties or responsible parties, could, could put in place. Correct. Because, you see... It's not the level of risk that's important, it's a level of control. I mean, if you want to be safe and live next door to a major hazard facility, you might be in an underground reinforced concrete bunker with its own air supply, which will be stupendously expensive and the amenity will be terrible. Very ugly. But, but you will be safe. Yes. That's not the issue. It's just a question of designing for what you've got. And what puzzles us is every site has problems. There can be flood. Cyclone. Lightning, bushfire, overlays, designing for bushfires is one of the critical ones that people do now. Mm. Um, you've got to take it into account. And the worst part about it is, and this is the bit that really bothers us, is that by not actually articulating this properly, they're leaving the people who are currently there potentially exposed. I mean, if you're dealing with explosions, the things you really fret about, and I mean, this is just a standard terrorist modus operandi, is that you put a bomb outside a building and you let it go bang... And if the glass isn't properly laminated and things like that, the glass just turns into shrapnel and impales everybody inside the building. And with an explosion, it's not so much the overpressure that causes the biggest amount of grief. It's the shards of glass. It's, it's the exploding. bits of materials that get picked up, tiles and things like that get flung out at high speed. I mean, that's what killed that poor girl, Katie Bender, in, in Canberra when they took the hospital down, remember? Mm. And they blew it up and the metal shard came flying across the lake and killed her. Um, I, I mean, you know, you've got to plan for what the credible critical worst-case consequences are. And so far as we can tell, um, all these municipalities that have major hazard facilities, they haven't been told what the credible critical worst case is. It's just opaque. And so anybody who's living there doesn't really know what they should or should not be designing for. And the council's actually not actually in a position in terms of building and planning controls to actually answer that question correctly. And what's probably something I don't think they fully comprehend Whilst the OHS Act in Victoria and the WHS legislation in all other jurisdictions is the enabling legislation for major hazards, um, and whilst uh, ministers are exempt from the legislation, they make the rules, and local government elected councillors I think are too, although I'd have to double-check that's a legal question, that doesn't invalidate the responsibility of the planners, designers, Architects. engineers, all the other people from not providing appropriate... Advice. Consistent with their obligations. Mm -hmm. And since, you know, Victoria in 2020, Premier Andrews made criminal manslaughter uh, following the rules from uh, the common law, admittedly it's got to be on a beyond reasonable doubt basis. But what disturbs us about this is we're fairly confident that the major hazards facilities and the major hazards regulator know what these credible worst case consequences are. And maybe not sharing the details with the responsible or other parties that really need to know about them. Well, yeah, like the people who are actually at risk, for one. And it's a duty under legislation. You must consult. It's an offence if you do not consult and front. So there's something really peculiar here that hasn't properly been addressed. And but I think if all of the responsible parties take that, that role of what they can do, you know, you're going to make those developments so much more safer than what they currently are. There's so much more that you can do outside of just what the major hazards facilities can do. Remember we did that place in Queensland all those years ago now where they, 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 they had the hospice on the hill mm. overlooking 
the major port, hazard. And they had four yeah. major hazard facilities. Mm. And remember we turned up, you see, I, I do have a certain sympathy for the major hazard facilities because they're kind of cranky because they keep getting all these people building closer and closer to yes, them. Yes, they have been there for a very long time. And, and, and yeah. I can see why they're frustrated. Um, in this particular case, the, the hospice on the hill was there before the major hazard facility, so there's some moral yep. there. But when we turned up to talk to them, the question we asked them is, said, right, guys, because they're so used to being beaten to a pulp by the community for creating dangers for the mm. community, right? And we sort of turned up and said, look, we're going to live together here. What do we have to do as a, as a site to protect ourselves against the credible worst-case consequences that you guys can produce? And I remember them looking back at us saying... You're not here to beat us up, you're just here to ask Did something. you really ask that question? <laughs> We're really here to find out what we need to do to protect ourselves against you from the credible worst-case things you can do. That's in the interest of the major hazard facility and that's in the interest of, of the, the site, of the site and, and the people doing things. It's in everybody's interest. Remember, we had to go and see the Deputy Premier about that one. Um, but that, what, what was interesting about that was there were things that could be put in place yes. to make the facility safe or the site safe you know, against the major hazards things. And it wasn't that complicated or, you know, it didn't cost a lot more money when they were in the planning and the development stages to put in um, at a site that already existed. Well, I think it actually has a larger social implication too because one of the things we suddenly realised dealing with the council and so forth, there were no engineers around. Council's no. just been de-engineered. You know, this has all been decided by town planners and building surveyors. I don't think they had a clue about what could actually be done. And, I mean, I was trained as a highly protected risk engineer in the US with Faction Mutual all those years ago. It's just not a... I'm perhaps not going to too much history. But the whole point of the Faction Mutual system, it's an engineering underwriting organisation. You can't join the pool unless you have achieved and developed your site and facility to recognised engineered and management standards. You simply can't even join the pool. So... The, the idea that you can't engineer this sort of stuff is just preposterous. Yes. It's been being done from Factory Mutual since the 1840s. And the idea that major hazards regulators and councils aren't fulfilling their duties under our legislated obligations by our parliaments, I just find extraordinary. And I think they're, they're really doing themselves a disservice in, and in the development stages or in the development of their communities as well because they're really relying on one set of controls that are often after the fact... Um, and, and not concentrating on a set of precautions that could easily be put in place. Following the hierarchy controls. Yeah. Um, there's something really peculiar. Um, so. And the idea that people are actively breaching the, le the legislation and knowingly doing so, well, perhaps I wouldn't say so knowingly. knowingly. The, yes. It's inadvertent, but from a... I mean, the, the way in Victoria passed the legislation, it, it's not just recklessness anymore. You know, you made or let it happen. It's yeah. also no. ought to have known. Yeah. And I think that makes a big difference. And, and I'm confident Major Hazards and the, and the Major Hazards site, they have studied their site. They know what the credible worst-case consequences are. And by special spelling these inner and outer safety areas, they're actually effectively spelling out what they believe the relative consequence around the site would be. And that should enable appropriate design controls. And I think that's, that's the, the summary of this podcast, isn't it? That... You know, major hazards have existed there in our communities for a long time. There's some controls that are there that they put in place, but there's a whole lot of other controls and precautions and mitigations that other parties, responsible parties, can be put in place to protect themselves against Design, these facilities. Design engineered controls are very reliable, robust controls, not emergency procedures. Mm. I mean, if you're dealing with an explosion, I mean, explosion of travel at the speed of sound, 
roughly. You're not going to get anyone out in that It's time. 340 metres per second, okay? The, the inner and outer safety area is sort of, you know, between 300 to 1,000 metres. This is all going off in three or four seconds. Yeah. But, but robust building designs and precautions you can put in place and, and they will be very effective. Always. Um, Otherwise you abrogate the entire basis of an industrial civilization and 200 years' worth of effort and it's quite peculiar. Okay. So that's sort of our summary. That don't don't sterilise um, a whole lot of land from major hazards facilities um, just because you don't think there's other precautions that can be put in place because there are. Um, so we hope you found our podcast interesting today and we look forward to you joining us next time. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Kate.